Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It is the hope of almost every generation in history that their children and grandchildren will go on to live wealthier, more prosperous lives than their own. People put countless hours of thought and planning into things like their children's education, life insurance and estate inheritances to make sure that this dream becomes a reality. But overwhelmingly, it is still not coming true. The long-suffering generation of millennials are now set to be significantly poorer than baby boomers and Gen Xers. Having entered the workforce during the fallout of the 2008 mortgage crisis and then been hit particularly hard during this current crisis has meant that today's millennials only account for around 3% of national wealth, where boomers at the same point in their lives accounted for 27%. This trend is more than just another pity party for our fellow latte-sipping millennials. On a wider level, the share of wealth owned by people under the age of 40 has shrunk from 13% to just under 7% in the last three decades. Even if we ignore the social issues of younger families having to make do with half of that of what their parents did, this can still have some serious economic implications. Young families establishing themselves in life make up a huge portion of consumer spending. Typically speaking, people between the age of 25 and 55 have been seen as the perfect consumer market. They have full-time jobs and disposable incomes, unlike younger buyers, but lack a bit of the weariness of older consumers. Therefore, if this trend continues, businesses around the world might start to lose out on their Goldilocks zone of consumer spending. So. What is causing this downward pressure on wealth in younger generations? What will this mean for the future of economic growth in nations like the USA? And could this just be a waiting game of wealth inevitably getting passed down? This episode of Economics Explained was made possible by our fans on Patreon. If you would like to gain early access to these videos before they're uploaded to YouTube, as well as participate in exclusive Q&A sessions, which are now held every Saturday at 9.30 Eastern Standard Time, please consider supporting our channel at patreon.com slash economics explained. Now, even without looking at the headline figures, most people would be able to tell you that new generations are falling further and further behind financially. What they might not be able to tell you is why. Sure, two major financial disasters didn't help, and they often exclusively get the blame. But if anything, shouldn't these economic downturns hit established estates with more to lose harder than younger people with decades left in their careers to recover? Well, yes, in theory. But of course, it didn't really pan out like that. So what are the economic headwinds that are blowing younger generations off course? The foundation of building wealth is being able to save money. 
The reality is that for every millionaire lottery winner, startup whiz, or beneficiary of great aunt Birgit's estate, there are 100 millionaires that got there by earning good incomes, living below their means, and saving the difference. In a perfect world, all of these things being equal, this process actually naturally benefits younger investors. Consider two colleagues. One is a baby boomer on the verge of retirement, and one is a millennial who has just been promoted into this new job. Both are earning a good income of $150,000 per year, working as insurance actuaries. Both are very sensible with their income and save 50% per year after paying taxes and living expenses. Because of the age difference, the millennial worker is only just starting to build up some wealth and has around $100,000 saved into a diverse portfolio of stocks. The boomer on the other hand has been doing this for decades and has $2 million invested in a very similar format, as well as a family home that is fully paid off worth around $500,000. Now let's say a major economic downturn comes around and causes a 30% drop in financial assets and real estate prices. This means that the millennial worker will lose $30,000 in value from their portfolio, but that baby boomer would lose $600,000 from their portfolio and be living in a home that is worth $150,000 less. In this hypothetical example, the boomer has lost 25 times more than their millennial colleague. Now, I can hear what the comments section is about to say, and yes, these losses are not actually realised unless either party sells off their assets, and yes, the boomer is still a lot richer than the millennial, but consider this. Assuming that the market does not recover, or that these losses are realised, it will take the millennial less than a year to recover the loss by saving their standard $50,000. The boomer on the other hand would take 15 years to make up the difference, which might be especially difficult when you remember that they were on the verge of retirement. The time series of investment returns over a long enough time frame are actually not very important, but short term they can make a huge difference. In theory, people with more money take longer to recover from downturns, which we have demonstrated with our perfect little example here. All of that is to say that it's not enough to explain that millennials had to go through the 2008 mortgage crisis early in their careers and use that as the sole explanation for the growing generational wealth gap. There has to be something more. That something more is likely to be one of the assumptions that we made. We assume that these two colleagues from different generations were earning as much, saving as much, and only using their regular income to contribute towards their savings, which is of course not always true. Boomers are on average further into their respective careers and therefore attract higher salaries. What's more is that even at the same point in their working lives, boomers were earning 20% higher real take-home incomes. This was all despite paying significantly less for their education. The average mathematics or statistics degree that you would need to qualify to become an actuary would cost just over $12,000 in 1980. That same degree today would cost a student around $80,000, which is more often than not paid for with debt. And even in this very generous example with two very high income earners, that puts the millennial two years behind their boomer colleagues in terms of saving money. And for most people on more average salaries, this difference could take decades to make up. Saving is another big one. If we were to take our example of a boomer and a millennial in the same role earning the same salary, it's going to be significantly easier for that boomer to save the prescribed $50,000 per year. 
A fully paid off family home means that not only is this boomer benefiting from appreciating real estate prices, but they are also avoiding having to pay rent. Which, in the major cities that actuaries tend to habitate, tends to cost around $1,500 a month, conservatively. This either means that the boomer can live a nicer lifestyle while saving the same, or can save an extra $19,000 a year tax-free. One of the larger determinants of wealth is home ownership, with the median net worth of homeowners being $231,400, compared with the median net worth of US renters not even breaking into five figures. A quick disclaimer here is that of course, wealthier people are naturally more likely to be homeowners because they can save a deposit and qualify for a home loan, so this correlation is not 100% causation, But on the flip side, people that are able to become homeowners almost always greatly benefit from being able to do so. And in fact, this weird quirk of statistics gives us some insight into one of the underlying causes of this discrepancy. There were undoubtedly some big wins for boomers and some strong headwinds for millennials, but this generational wealth gap is actually just a sign of a problem on a larger scale, a regular wealth gap. Ask yourself this, would you rather be in the bottom 10% of millennials or baby boomers in terms of net worth? The correct answer is that it just doesn't really matter. Both of these groups are worth pretty much nothing. It's at the other end of the spectrum where this difference becomes staggering. The collective net worth of all 80 million millennials in the USA is around 6 trillion US dollars. This is including everyone from the recent med graduate with nothing but a cup of noodles and half a million dollars in student loan debt, all the way up to Mark Zuckerberg, who personally contributes around 1.5% of the total wealth of this collective net worth pool. Six trillion dollars is certainly an impressive figure, but just the top 3,000 richest baby boomers are worth more. These 3,000 multi-millionaires and billionaires alone make the arguments of student loan debt, housing affordability, job opportunities, and financial instability almost completely irrelevant to the generational wealth gap. These factors do have some implications on the economy, but when we are looking at why one generation has such a large collection of total wealth, it's because it just so happens to be stacked with these massively wealthy billionaires. Talking about the fallout of the financial crisis in the context of the generational wealth gap would be like talking about a bad referee call in a little league soccer game where one team just so happens to have Lionel Messi. Sure, those other factors aren't helping, but at the end of the day, it ain't gonna make much difference to the final outcome. Now, uber-wealthy people are nothing new, but never in history have they claimed so much wealth And simply by virtue of the fact that boomers are in the age group that have had enough time to found major companies or have had those companies passed down to them by their parents, they tend to claim a larger portion of these statistical wealth outliers. Okay, but one last thing. Wouldn't this have all been the case when boomers were starting out too? But back then, their generation claimed 27% of national wealth at the same age that millennials only claimed 3%. Well... This is actually due to three main factors. One, the pool of wealth that tends to concentrate around 40 to 70 year olds has swelled to extreme levels off the back of continued growth in financial markets over the past 100 years. This meant that 40 years ago, a modest nest egg accounted for a larger slice of a smaller pie. 
Two, yes, admittedly, baby boomers did enjoy a period of good incomes and low cost of living. There is no getting around the fact that this did help. But maybe not as much as the third point, which is that there were a lot of them. The baby boom is a reference to a figurative boom in the number of babies that were born after the end of World War II. When this generation went on to join the workforce, they collectively accounted for a much larger portion of the total population. This statistically meant that even if they were all worth as much individually, they would account for a larger portion of the wealth collectively because they accounted for a larger portion of the total amount of people. This chart here does highlight some very serious issues in the economy, but it's not nearly as scary as the publishers would like you to believe. Consider it like this, say you start playing a video game like World of Warcraft, if you had started playing the game when it was first released in 2004, you would be doing alright for yourself. Theoretically, if you so happen to axe the very first pig or whatever in the game, you would have accounted for 100% of the total net worth of the player base, even if it was only very briefly. If you were to start playing the game one day later and slay that same boar, chances are it would only account for a tiny fraction of a percent of the total wealth in the economy because thousands of players have been hard at work for 24 hours, leveling up and making themselves wealthier. If you were to start playing the game today, you're going to end up on a server with the same people that might have been playing it for 16 years. If you were to axe that very same pig, it would only account for an infinitesimally small portion of the total wealth in game because this virtual economy is millions of times wealthier than it was back then. A quick side note is that we are terribly sorry for the inevitable butchering of some of the finer details around World of Warcraft. The research phase hasn't started yet, but a video on the economy of Azeroth is coming soon. Either way, millennials have started playing the game of life, leveling up and grinding for income decades after the largest growth period ever, which all begs the question about what this means for the future of this wealth. Amongst all of this, there is the comfort that eventually this wealth will be passed down from boomers as they eventually, well, die. Unfortunately, this does not mean that we can put our feet up, start the clock ticking and call it problem solved. A lot of this wealth is in the form of private companies that won't be worth nearly as much under the stewardship of their eventual heirs. We covered this in depth in our video on the great wealth transfer and in many ways this video is an unofficial part 2 to that one. So, if you are curious about that topic, go and watch that video once you're done here. Shameless plug aside, and even if we assume that this wealth transfer goes flawlessly, it doesn't solve the issue. Wealth keeps getting created, and most people leave their assets to their children, who are normally going to be around 50 to 60 years old when they pass away. When this happens, it's likely Gen X that will be the next wealthiest generation in history, and then Gen Y, and so on and so forth. All while the youngest generation, which is just starting out from zero, or more likely starting out in debt, will continue to account for a smaller and smaller slice of a bigger and bigger pie. But is this actually a problem? Well, maybe not. In many ways, the dream of children being richer than their parents does come true. It's just that they need to wait until their inheritance check comes to them when they are 60 years old. On a larger scale, it could be a problem though. If more and more wealth pools amongst older generations, it could seriously impact the potential for growth amongst people in their prime years. 
These are the people between the ages of 25 and 55 that are out there buying bigger homes for their families, sending their kids to college, buying new cars, going on holidays, and overall being good little consumers. If a larger chunk of wealth is just sitting dormant with older people who have a lower propensity to go out and spend it, this may exacerbate the entire problem by denying young go-getters the opportunity to grab some of that money while it has been circulated around the economy. The generational wealth gap is real, and it is a problem. But as with all doom and gloom headlines, it might not be as big of a deal as they would have you believe. In the same way that I would personally rather own 3% of Amazon than 30% of Wish.com, a generation should be happier owning 3% of modern day America rather than 30% of the USA in the 1970s. All of that being said, these statistics are perhaps little more than a scary looking outcome of a much larger issue with inside the USA. The arguments around wealth inequality are endless and very divisive, but people on both sides of the debate need to realise that this wealth squeeze is just one outcome of this reality. Would policies like student loan forgiveness, increased minimum wages and affordable housing policies help to alleviate this? Well, sure, they would certainly alleviate the symptoms, but anything short of completely resetting growth on the economy is not going to stop the generational wealth gap from growing wider and wider. But if we can't solve this wealth gap, maybe there is one that could be addressed. So stay tuned, like, subscribe, comment, and all of that good stuff if you want us to see us address that other one soon. Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed the latest video. If you did, please consider liking and subscribing. This video is made possible by our patrons over on Patreon, so if you enjoy these video, please consider supporting the channel like these awesome people did. Thanks guys, bye. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.